Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio and The Beacon. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And joining us from Jefferson City is... Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, thank you for having me. Our third statewide official on the show. Yes, we've had Schweik, we've uh, State Auditor Schweik, we've had Secretary of State Jason Kinder, and now Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. We're moving on up in the world, guys. (laughs) So, well, thank you very much for joining us. I, I would imagine that most of our listeners will be familiar with who you are and what you do now, but to start us off here, tell us a little bit about where you started. Well, my first run for uh, public office as a candidate myself, I'd been involved before, but I I first ran as a candidate in 1992 for the open state Senate seat in in, uh, my home town of Cape Girardeau. And I covered it. (laughs) That's true. Six six surrounding counties. You covered... uh, you covered Teddy Roosevelt, didn't you, Joe? <laughs> Maybe, but I definitely covered that race. You just said the same thing I've wanted to say for weeks. Thank and you, I, Governor. I, I was fortunate enough to, to win in a bad Republican year, and I came to Jefferson City in 1993 and uh, as a minority party member of the Senate, and I spent the 90s trying to get the majority, and, and uh, that happened 13 years ago this week, Jason, in uh, 2001. <laughs> And uh, I became, I had been elected Republican leader of the, uh, the caucus before that special election at the end of January. And, and when we went up with the majority of 18 to 16, I became the first Republican Senate president pro tem in 53 years. And I held, held that job for four years and was elected uh, lieutenant governor in 04 and have been reelected twice. You've beaten, if you go down the people, uh, the list of people that you've beaten, you beat a former a gubernatorial nominee in Betty Hearns. You beat a former Secretary of State, Becky Cook, that did not go to a recount, by the way. I want right. to just say that for the record. Right. You beat a well-funded state rep. You beat, you beat a state senator of your own party, and you beat a, a former state auditor, which is a, a formidable amount of people that you've beaten. Um, what do you think has been the key to your electoral success over the years? Well, you're kind to mention all that. Uh, I've never really sat down and looked at it that way. Uh, I think you've got to get around the state, uh, be energetic, ask people for their vote, ask them for their support, put place before them a record that is worthy of, uh, of support. And, uh, and I've tried to be an unconventional Republican in the sense that I don't ignore the urban core. Uh, not only do I not ignore it, I've spent an enormous amount of time there, uh, and I've been criticized for it or sort of ridiculed for it by people in my own party who said it was a fool's errand. But I have to happen to believe that especially in 2008 uh, and in 2008 and 12, I was the only Republican winner statewide, and there were 11 candidates contending for the offices in those two presidential years. Uh, I happen to believe that my attention to the urban core and to precincts that do not vote Republican um, is among the reasons why I was the only survivor. Uh, well, this sort of ac- actually segues really well into one of our first questions, which is about the low-income tax credits, which are, uh-huh. uh, I mean, they're not used just in the urban core, but right. uh, but they are a ma- big issue in Kansas City and in St. Louis and right. even in some of the suburbs. And you've been one of the big defenders of them. And uh, found yourself 
about six weeks ago at a news conference with State Senator Jamil Nasheed and some other urban Democrats in the St. Yes. Louis area. And then since then, things kind of blew up. So do you want yes. to talk about that a little bit well, and about I think your thoughts to, about Well, to address this, we need to tell listeners or remind them that one of the boards I sit on, I don't know, 14 or 15 or more boards and commissions in state government. And one of the most active is the Missouri Housing Development Commission. The Missouri Housing Development Commission exists uh, these last, I believe, 46 years since its creation to provide low-income housing uh, for needy people and also for seniors. And we do this by means of working with private developers uh, because the state really can't, doesn't want to be directly in the housing business. So private developers bring us projects and actually compete with each other to bring us worthy projects scattered around the state uh, in, in communities and cities and towns large and small. And we meet uh, eight or ten times a year to approve projects and to uh, facilitate the building of these projects by the financing. And the way we do that, our, our principal tool is through low-income uh, housing tax credits. It's a mixture of a federal tax credit program and a state tax credit program. And so our big meeting usually each year is December when we approve the projects for the coming year. And we met on December 6th this year for that purpose and we had an unprecedented scenario unfold in which as soon as we approved the minutes to the meeting and got that stuff out of the way. The chairman says, by the way, I was blindsided. I think I was probably the only member of the commission who did not get a heads up that this was coming. We're introducing the, uh, he said, we're introducing the governor's chief of staff, Mr. John Watson, to address the commission. Well, I've been on the commission eight years at this point, and I've never heard this. And he comes in to say, and by the way, the big deal in front of the legislature in a special session that week was the package of, of uh, incentives designed to try to attract the big Boeing contract to St. Louis, to Missouri. And Mr. Watson proceeded to say that he had made a deal previously undisclosed, so it can fairly be called a secret deal, with five or six state senators, all Republicans, that uh, they would do everything they could to delay the issuance of these tax credits uh, in return for those senators not opposing the Boeing deal. Now, at the time Mr. Watson spoke, the Boeing legislation had not only passed the Senate, it had passed the House, and it had arrived on the governor's desk approximately one hour before our meeting on Friday afternoon, December 6th. So in some senses, the, the issue was already moot as Mr. Watson addressed us. Uh, I asked him the only questions asked. I said, who are these senators? Uh, how many? He named five or six. In fact, he named Senator Lemke, Joe Manis and, and Jason. He, he named Senator Lemke, who has not served in the Senate for a year. That is true. Having been defeated at the 2012 election. So By he, Scott Sifton, yes. So uh, be that as it may, I... I disputed the necessity, and well, let me back up here. Mr. Watson went on to say to the commission, we are asking you to postpone 
the approval of the funding of these credits until a date, and they, I guess, arbitrarily selected it in the month of March, March 14th, uh, so that we can keep our word to these senators. And I said, well, what you have, I was the only one speaking against it and the only one who subsequently voted against it, I said, what you have is uh, a small group of senators who are certainly entitled to their opinion. Uh, this is a hobby horse of certain people, including the governor. But in the six, seven, eight years they've been pushing this hobby horse, they have never come close to attracting a majority in either chamber of the General Assembly, not in the House and not in the Senate. And we work by persuasion uh, in this building to persuasion to a majority. And they haven't come close to that. And here they propose to shut everything down uh, on our issuance of credits that would put bricklayers and carpenters and laborers and electricians and plumbers to work, building needed housing for low-income seniors. In the case of Kansas City, a veterans senior project uh, all was threatened by this move requested by the governor. So I spoke against it, and I was the only one to do so. I said, this is unprecedented in the 46-year history of this commission. Uh, no such request has ever been made by a governor of either party, and this is a moot point with the bill already on the governor's desk, and we should not be doing this. We should not be delaying worthy, needed projects uh, three or four months uh, in order when the Boeing deal was going to be on the governor's desk anyway. Uh, by the way, the, the Senate leadership was not going to be cowed by these senators declaring their opposition and had stated their intention to keep senators there day and night through the weekend if necessary to put the bill on the governor's desk. So I, I decried this uh, governor's presentation by Mr. Watson as a spurious objection or spurious uh, issue, not a real one. And I was the only no vote as the commission fell into line and did the governor's bidding. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Governor, I, I did want to read back a quote that you told me in 2012. And you, when I was talking with you for your reelection campaign and asked you about the tax credit issue in general, which included low income and historics, you said the following. I think that this alleged crisis has been magnified by a few, a few of the fiercest opponents I would put in the category of crank zealots. They have distinguished themselves as cranks and zealots, Captain Ahab pursuing the white whale. The reason I'm reading that quote Did to I you, say that? Yes, you did. Absolutely. I have it on tape somewhere. Okay. <laughs> now, the reason I'm asking you and, and recounting that quote is, do you think that there is a split within your party among these quote-unquote cranks and zealots in the Senate and people like you who are more supportive of well, historic and low-income tax credits? Let, let me offer this perspective in answering your question about those opponents. I said earlier they're entitled to their opinion, and as indeed they are. We all are. They're not entitled to their own set of facts. Let me tell you, some, as somebody who has run statewide three times and been President Pro Tem, the only senator elected by all senators for four years before that, so I'm now going back 13 years to 2001. I have been traveling this state every corner, every, every county, and in three statewide campaigns meeting tens of thousands of Missourians, I have never had one soul come up to me and complain about tax credits. This is a spurious issue 
cooked up by a few in one editorial board that can't get off the subject, uh, and the governor has signed on to it to try to divide Missourians and leverage people in the education community against developers of low-income and senior housing. And I don't think we ought to be in the business of dividing Missourians uh, for this purpose uh, when, it, when it, to me, is not a real issue. Now, uh, when you first spoke out about this, uh, I mean, well, you've spoken out about it several times, but last week when you and I talked about it and I posted a story on it, when I talked to you later, you said that the Attorney General, Chris Coster, who also sits on the commission, had reached out to you to talk about this. Uh, has anything come from that? We had a confidential conversation, uh, Mr. Coster and I did, yesterday afternoon, and I'm not at liberty to discuss it. Well, let me ask you a, an argument that is put by that editorial board, which you alluded to, which is the St. <laughs> Louis Post-Dispatch, if we want to clear the air. And, and this is going to be an argument from these, these anti-tax credit senators that the reason why they haven't been able to put caps or limits on them is because developers and banks are interest groups that are very powerful. They donate a lot of money to campaigns, and that's the only reason that there's no headway on this issue. What say you? Well— you know what? Uh, that is uh, an argument they're entitled to make. We we don't get any uh, uh, editorials from that editorial board decrying labor union donations to members of the opposite party. We do not get uh, editorials from that uh, from that editorial board decrying the donations of the trial lawyers who effectively own this governor and this attorney general by six-figure donations. Um, you know, they pick and choose one sector of donors who they don't like and magnify attention on them. Now, I think it's good that public attention is focused on donors. I'm for full disclosure of all donations within 48 hours of those do donations being made and let the people decide. But the people have seen this through the years and it's a collective, massive, statewide shrug of the shoulders. They are not concerned about this. They're concerned about jobs. They're concerned about getting housing to folks who need it. And we have a mechanism for doing that called the Missouri Housing Development Commission that is under unprecedented assault by this governor and that is being, whose, whose mission and charge that has been maintained in a bipartisan fashion for over 45 years is now being subvert, subverted by this governor and his allies. And, and I will say further that if we're going to have the governor's chief of staff come in and basically order the commission what to do over my objections, then why have an independent commission whose members are appointed by the governor and independently confirmed by the Senate for, for membership on this commission to make decisions that we, we used to think were independent? Why don't we just have a housing commission run out of the governor's office with his staff as the members taking orders from him? Now, have, have there been any reactions to your going public last week with some of the facts that you and the governor don't talk and really haven't for years? Um, has there been Not any reaction? Not a big reaction, but let me tell you what's okay. fascinating. Okay. What the governor's been up to two Fridays ago, Joe, uh, the man who decries tax credits, went to Kansas City. What was he in Kansas City for two Fridays ago? For the largest economic development project they're claiming now in the Department of Economic Development in the history of the state that the state has ever done. 
What project is that? It's Bannister Mall on the south side of the Kansas City metro area, which has been a, a, a disaster of a, a mature shopping mall that went bad. And we've been working on it. I was working on a, a solution to Bannister Mall between 05 and 09 when I was chairman of the Missouri Development Finance Board, another board on which I sit. Excuse me. Uh, Got to clear my throat. Yeah, we'll edit that. <laughs> and part I out. was working on Bannister Mall, and I support the Bannister Mall project. But the governor goes over there uh, to stand with officials of Cerner, and I'm the one who made the motion to approve it in the Missouri Development Finance Board last summer when it came before us, and it was unanimously approved. But the governor goes over there and supports that. Now, it's the largest package of tax credits and state development incentives in the history of Missouri. And the governor's for that one. Uh, also employed at that corporation, which is building this marvelous new, new campus that is transformational at the old Bannister Mall site, is a senator who is one of the biggest tax credit opponents. Now, someone in the media should ask the governor and other tax credit opponents how they feel about the Bannister Mall project. You're, you're talking about your former Republican opponent, Brad Lager. I aren't support you? both, Jason. I support the Bannister Mall. I have a yeah. years long record of supporting it. But what is the guiding bright line principle for these folks who support Bannister Mall and oppose other needed tax credit programs? I'd like that question to be put on the table and asked the folks on the other side of this debate. Now, one of the other big issues, aside from the low-income tax credits and tax credits in general has been right to work. You've been a big promoter of that. Uh, there's several bills in the legislature this session about it. You want to talk about that and how you think how you think it might be put into effect and yeah. what uh, what you think the results would be if it was. Uh, put I into do effect. want to talk about it. Uh, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, so this may be a uh, opening the door to another visit by me to your wonderful show. <laughs> but right to work uh, is an issue uh, that is not going away. It is an issue that whose time has come. In my lifetime, we've seen the number of right to work states, uh, freedom to work states, come from the teens into the 20s. Uh, in 2001, Oklahoma, our neighboring state to the southwest, passed it in a referendum. Uh, uh, the most recent states to pass it are Indiana. And Michigan, Michigan, the home, the birthplace of the trade union movement, the birthplace of the United Auto Workers. Uh, uh, and this is an issue that is very pressing on Missouri's economy because six of our neighboring eight states are right-to-work states, and many of those states are moving ahead of us on attracting jobs, investment, opportunity, and, uh, and, and, and young people moving there for all those things. And, Joe, I would refer you to the Post-Dispatch, and I have it on my iPhone because I, ca I captured their headline from last fall in which they were reporting on the most recent census data. And the re most recent census data reflects real desperation and despair in the St. Louis region as we are not the metropolitan area we used to be in the Missouri I grew up in. We've lost two congressional seats since I was uh, a young guy getting out of college. One in 1981. The right. Missouri I grew up in had 10 seats. And 
we went to nine in 1981. And then uh, three years ago, 2011, we lost another one and went to eight seats. And you know what? On our current trajectory, Missouri is on track to lose another seat and go to seven congressional seats in the, after the next census. I don't want to see that happen. But the, but the Post-Dispatch reported on the census data, and they said poverty up, incomes down. Poverty up, incomes down in household income. Missouri was one of only two states in the nation to see falling uh, household income last year. This is an, a disaster unfolding, and, it, and I want to come back on your show and talk about the fact that 78% of the United Auto Worker members who had jobs in Missouri auto plants a decade ago no longer have those jobs. Those jobs are gone. They are gone to right-to-work states. Is that the impetus behind you, – you sent out a tweet during – the right-to-work debate where you said Moe's economy more like the city of St. Louis. And I'm paraphrasing here. It caused a little bit of a stir yeah. here. But that was right. what's, what you just said was – that was what you were referencing in that tweet. Is Look, that fair to say? I, 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 have, I have an incontestable, indisputable record of championing St. Louis, the city, and the region's economy at risk to my own career. In each of my statewide races, I've been attacked for all I've done for St. Louis. In cynical ads that are run in places like Joplin and Springfield and St. Joe and Southeast Missouri. So my record of supporting and risking my career to help St. Louis is indisputable. Now, what I said was, what I was referring to was, do we want an economy more like the city of St. Louis, not the St. Louis region, right. but the city of St. Louis, which when my father graduated from medical school there in the 1940s had 850,000 people in the city, and today it has about 320,000. And the only city that has seen a larger exodus of citizens uh, in the nation, I believe, is Detroit. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, we have leadership in the city of St. Louis that wants to keep out Walmart, to take one non-union example, okay? They barred Walmart from coming in there because they're non-union. What do citizens in the city of St. Louis do? They drive a few miles across the city limit to shop at Walmart and at Sam's. Well, okay, if you keep Walmart out of the city of St. Louis, who's the loser? The loser is people who um, the, the the loser is people who live in the city of St. Louis and forego that tax revenue that they would otherwise be getting in the investment and the jobs. Now, so yeah. so. Uh, I'd offer you this example also. Until 1981, every Corvette Stingray that was ever made in America was made in, not only in the St. Louis region, but in the city of St. Louis in the north side. Mm -hmm. That plant is gone. That plant went south, taking the jobs, investment, and opportunity with it. Now, we my, 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 to sum up my point is, as, as Lincoln, the founder of my party, said, it's not just where you are standing right now, it's whither you are trending. It's where, where are we going? Are we, are we moving in a direction that has St. Louis and Kansas City and our state more like the Austins and the San Antonios and the Houstons and the Dallas and the Tucsons and the Charlottes and the Atlantas, or are we trending in the direction of the Detroits and the Clevelands and the Buffalo, New York, and the other losing cities, towns, and states. 
We've talked. And that's a debate our state very much needs to have. We've talked a little bit on our show about this before, and I'd be interested to get your take on it. Um, so if right to work were to get on the ballot, were to be an issue on the ballot, uh, do you think it would mobilize Democrats and actually hurt Republicans in that election? I think it's good if we uh, stimulate interest in people, in, in, and there's only so long you can go without having this debate. Are we going to wait another uh, six years and have another census that says, okay, Missouri, you lose another congressional seat? You know, my parents were born in the 1920s. Missouri had 16 congressional seats. I don't know if you're aware of that. I was, yes. I, I'm we sure we Champ, have gradually become less them. and less important in the national scheme of things as states like Texas, Florida, Arizona, other states in the South and West gain seats. Now, um, most of the bills that are in the legislature this session would just put right to work into effect. Now, just so our listeners know that right to work would bar employers and unions from requiring other workers at that company to have to pay union dues and a representation fee um, if they don't want to. Where now, if everybody, if there, if a majority vote for union representation, everyone's assessed something. Um, do Do you think that the bills that would automatically put into effect have a chance this session? Or, I mean, there was only one of those that would actually put it on the ballot. I, I do believe they have a chance. I believe they have a good chance. I believe the House is going to pass the bill, and I believe the votes are there in the Senate as well. Yeah, but it, would there be votes to override a gubernatorial veto? Well, if you're talking about a, a referendum clause, the governor is a spectator like every other citizen, and it go, he has one vote in November at the ballot box. Right, but what I'm saying— It doesn't go to his desk on yeah, a referendum clause. But most of the bills aren't a referendum clause. Most of the bills would just automatically well, put it It's to well effect. known that this governor will veto it. The governor thinks everything is great. The governor thinks the status quo is just wonderful. You heard him last Tuesday night in his speech— uh, and, and I'm saying the governor, the state over which he presides, here's the post-dispatch headline. I ought to get it for you. Poverty up, incomes down. That's the status quo. Now, if Missourians want to stay with that, they will be with the governor. Put your head in the sand. Uh, don't pay attention to what Kansas is doing, where they're stealing our jobs, our investment, our companies, and our opportunities. Don't pay attention to the fact that Oklahoma is moving ahead with income tax cuts to add to their right-to-work opportunity to attract business. Don't pay attention to the fact that the neighboring state of Tennessee is moving ahead with auto jobs that used to be in St. Louis and are gone for good. Now, you've got some of the labor leaders who are saying, well, what you're advocating is for lower-paying jobs. What say you to that? When adjusted for living costs, people have more disposable income in right-to-work states. And, Joe, you're getting me into a, okay. a, a, a detailed study, that a discussion that is really appropriate for another occasion. But there are sound answers to that, and that's why we need a good 10-month debate on this subject. It, is, it, it may have been true in the past uh, that right-to-work states that were concentrated in the South had lower wages. But... Let me, let me offer you this example. You know what it costs to rent a, an average small apartment in New York City? About $3,000, $3,200 a month. You can rent a house in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for 800 a month. Now, Alabama is a right-to-work state, 
and the wages might be lower, but you have far, far more disposable income than you do in that, in that uh, forced union state in the Northeast with higher living costs. So all of the numbers need to be taken into the equation and put on the table for the people to see and for the people to decide. Senator Justice. Why, well, are, sorry. why is Texas gaining four congressional seats as a right-to-work state with no income tax when Missouri is losing a congressional seat? Why did Florida gain two as a right-to-work state with no income tax? People move, capital moves where it is welcomed and where it is treated uh, with hospitality. And it is run out of states like New York and other states in the Rust Belt Northeast where it is treated with hostility. Now, now, Senator Justice was on our show last week, and I asked her whether there would be any scenario where the Senate Democrats would stop filibustering to let a referendum go through. And she basically said no. Mm-hmm. So is this going to be an issue that's going to require a previous question to break, or do you think that's going to be intractable? Others might, others might say that, Jason. I would never speculate on that. I'll leave that to the senators. But, uh, uh, you know, people draw lines in the sand in dramatic fashion, as Senator Justice did all the time. And then, you know, uh, it's like uh, trash talking before the Super Bowl. Then you've got to go play the game. You've got to go strap on your chin strap and knock somebody down and, and see what happens. Okay. Now, now yes. speaking of trash talking, though, some you know have referred to the complaints you about the governor as in that line. How would you classify the fact that you guys don't talk? I mean, is there any way that that's going to change in the next couple well, here years? Here are the facts, Joe. Okay. Uh, the day after the election in 2008, I'm the only Republican winner statewide. I called the governor. We had about a three-minute conversation. I congratulated him on his big win. I told him that he and I shared many supporters in common. I I identified many of them as Nixon Kinder Democrats, and he knew their names, and he was aware of that. I said, Governor, you confront big Republican majorities in both the House and Senate. I said, uh, I won't agree with you on everything, but where we can, I offer you my help in getting things through uh, the Republican legislature. Um, that was the last substantive conversation with one exception in the summer of 2009 concerning the Tour of Missouri bicycle race where I forced him to call me. That is the last substantive conversation on any issue that we've had. Um, It is his choice to reject my offer of help with these big Republican majorities, and I don't need the work helping him, although I have have helped him nonetheless uh, when he got in trouble uh, on confirming some of his uh, appointments to the Cabinet in the first year and on passage of some economic development measures. Uh, He's gotten my help notwithstanding his lack of desire for it or any overture to uh, discussing my help. Uh, We're we're kind of running a little... So it's his choice, Joe. Ball's in his court. Okay. So we have his answer now in the sixth year. Yeah. So we're running a little bit low on time. We would definitely welcome you back to talk more about Right to Work. I look forward to that. Before we let you go... um, I do want to ask you kind of about your future plans. You decided not to run in the 8th Congressional District race, which has been well-documented. Kind of surprising. And, um, yeah, a lot of people thought you might have an edge there. But I think there are a lot of people wondering what you're going to do next. Um, are you – are you have any – first, I mean, let me just ask you this. Are you thinking of running for another term as lieutenant governor in 2016, or is this your last one? I, I – I'm looking to 2016 with great anticipation. I'm focused on 2014 and helping my fellow Republicans 
as I always have done. And all options are on the table for 2016. Nothing is ruled out at all, Jason. But I'm not going to announce my intentions today on your show. Oh, <laughs> I'm really disappointed okay. by that. But, um, yeah, we'll, 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 you'll, you'll have to do that on, on the next show. Well, can you say, though, real quickly, what prompted you not to run for Congress? Well, you know, I, I've been through three statewide campaigns, uh, they're enormous exertions. Uh, I was still paying off debt last year, Joe, from the 2012 campaign. Uh, in which I was outspent in the primary by about a million one and still prevailed. Um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally draining experience. And you just, you just come to a realization. I, I put out a 400-something word statement. You, I refer yes. you to that. And uh, I just said, you know, politics isn't everything, and, it, and politics isn't everything every year. Uh, there's something to be said for having a life beyond it and for taking a breather when you've been through three tough statewide campaigns and emerged the last two times as my party's only winner. So uh, uh, that that all played into it. Do you get enough respect within the Republican Party? I know some of the donors defected from you in 2012. I mean, do you feel like they're recognizing I'm your achievements? I'm grateful for all the support I've gotten and the don donors uh, who have responded to make me the only winner the last two times, and, and uh, I'm humbled by that. Okay. All right. I think we're about ready to get kicked out of the studio here, so I'll close this out. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, though. Thanks. Thanks to you guys. And Look forward to coming back. To close us out here, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the lieutenant governor on Twitter at at Peter Kinder. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Thank you. So long.